Today we continue to examine our Lord's faithful ministry while here on earth and glean many marvelous truths concerning his glorious person. And I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, where we will be looking at verses 34 through verse 20 of chapter 15. Matthew 14. My desire this morning is to help you to understand practically and to apply the principles of this particular text to our lives and to our ministry. And this morning, we're going to learn much about confronting phony religion, confronting phony religion, a problem that continues to be a source of grief to my heart. It's very prevalent in our culture. At times, it's even found within our own church. For daily, I am confronted with the devastating consequences of phony religion as I deal with broken lives through emails, through phone calls, through personal counseling. I see hypocrisy of all stripes, and I see the metastasizing corruption of apostate Churches that continue to gain momentum in our community. They seem to be springing up all over the world. Some of them hold to very complicated systems of legalism, while others are nothing more than cotton candy churchianity. For seeker sensitive types, for the seeker sensitive movement where charlatans seduce self indulgent seekers with. Hollywood types of so-called worship services as they throw open even wider the gate of an errant gospel. And then like lemmings, people run headlong over the cliffs of counterfeit Christianity. So it's a very frustrating thing for me, and I'm sure for many of you, this whole issue of phony religion. So we come to this historical narrative where the incarnate Christ confronts the very same Thing, and we learn much of both the nature of phony religion and how to confront it. So let's look at verse 34 of Matthew 14 through verse 20 of Matthew 15. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they began to entreat him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let let him be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. 
But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after he had called the multitude to him, he said to them, hear and understand. Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And Peter answered and said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So what has happened now is they have come to a fertile plain between Capernaum and Magdala a place called Gennesaret. It's a very rich agricultural area. And immediately the word gets out that Jesus is here. And so people begin to gather around and bring in their sick. And we immediately see the awesome power and the compassion of the Lord Jesus as he heals many people who want nothing to do with a spiritual healing. They want nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins. But they're only concerned about their physical health, a very similar motivation to those that flock after faith healers today. And yet, even with their selfish motives, what does Jesus do? He heals them. In fact, John's gospel tells us in chapter six that he offered himself to them. He teaches them. He tells them how he is the bread of life. He offers them eternal life. But they were too blinded by their own phony religion to see their sin, to see him as their savior. And so they were profoundly offended with his words. And John 6, 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. But notice in verse one of chapter 15, it says then, which would indicate that it may have been even several days later. Some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, folks, here we begin to see the first of three marks of phony religion and how to confront it. And the first one is that of empty worship. You see, empty, hypocritical, apostate worship will inevitably be the practice of the multitudes. And they will always have their visible and renowned spokesmen, in this case, the scribes and the Pharisees. Those who will throw open even wider the gate of, of the gospel as we see it today. It wasn't that way with their day, but we see it today. And their emphasis will always be, as were the Pharisees in that day, an emphasis on traditions. An emphasis 
that would attack grace and certainly violate the truth of the gospel. They will always have some kind of a self-righteous, legalistic, man-made rules type of a system that gives them the illusion of godliness. Now, in our days, we have some of this, but also we have just this attitude. Well, you know, if I'm just being a good person, that's enough. And that makes me right before God. But for many people, it's a much more elaborate system. And that's what you see here in this text. And so they say, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, let me explain this to you. The tradition of the elders refers to the rabbinical teachings that they had of that day. And these teachings were considered to be the final interpretation of the Mosaic law, that somehow the law had been given to a a series of, 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 of rabbis over time. And these people would then kind of reinterpret it and and apply it to the lives of the people. However, their interpretations were not precise and they were not offered to the people to help them understand how to truly worship the Lord and how to perfectly honor and serve him with pure hearts. But rather, they became nothing more than man-made regulations and ceremonies and traditions concocted by hard-hearted, self-righteous hypocrites designed to somehow offer the people a way of of, of twisting God's commands and superficially obeying them. In fact, they had a book, and you can read it today. I've got one in my library. It's called the Talmud, and it is a repository of such oral traditions and ceremonies and regulations. Now, washing the hands just happened to be one of them. And this is a perfect example of how they perverted the ceremonial washings that God had prescribed to be nothing more than than outward symbols or pictures of spiritual truth. In this case, the need for a thorough cleansing of sin in every area of life. Now, you might go to Leviticus and you could read much about the prescribed rituals and procedures that the priests um, had to apply to their lives as they did various ceremonies. You can read in other parts of the Mosaic law uh, that there were certain Animals that were unclean, that you, you were not to eat, and, and you were forbidden to touch certain uh, types of people that were diseased, for example, lepers. There were certain physical conditions, such as menstruation for the women, that would make a person ceremonially unclean or ceremonially defiled. But this was never considered a, a, a sin. This was not a sin issue that required forgiveness. But it would rather prevent them from participating in certain worship ceremonies or certain types of of social activities. But there was only a need for a ceremonial cleansing, not a divine forgiveness of sins. But now the Pharisees had moved all of this to a completely new level of hypocrisy. The ceremonial washings that they had were, in fact, ways in their minds of being righteous before God and kind of validating their righteousness to themselves and to other people. Ritualistic acts that somehow earned merit with God. And this is evidence of empty worship that so many of the Jews participated in. Now, it's interesting with respect to the defilement of, of hands when they were not washed properly, Some rabbis even taught 
that there was a demon named Shibta, and this demon would, uh, when you were asleep, he would come along and he would uh, affix himself, attach himself, cling to your hands without you realizing it. And then if you didn't wash your hands properly, when you went to eat something, uh, the demon would get on the food and enter into you and defile your body. And this is how ludicrous it had become. And so uh, and they had other variations of thought with respect to the cleansing of hands and the naive people followed these things uh, scrupulously, fastidiously. They even had water jars available before every meal. And they thought that you had to have a minimum amount of water, which was considered a quarter of a log, which would be enough to fill one and one half eggshells. You had to have that much water. And what you would have to do is point your fingers upward and pour the water over both hands. And the water had to run down to your wrist and then drip off of your wrist to to cleanse everything properly. And if it somehow ran back down on your fingers, then you're unclean again because the water is unclean. So you would have to turn your hands the other way with the fingers down and repeat the process. And finally, after all of that was over, you were to take your fist and to rub each hand individually. Now, failure to do this meant that you were defiled and you could lose eternal life. Now, this was the mentality of the Pharisees. Now, we laugh, and yet how many people in our own modern evangelical culture have deceived themselves into thinking that they are truly worshiping God because they obey certain traditions or regulations? You say, well, we don't have anything like that. Well, maybe, maybe not. Let me give you a few. What about those that feel like they are godly, that they are truly worshipers of God because they just show up? To church on Sunday morning. How many times you hear people say, hey, did you meet so and so? Yeah. What do you think about? Well, you know, I think that person's a Christian. Oh, really? Why? Because they go to church. And that's the end of it. Or people that have their name on some church role. And that's all they have. Or they perform certain acts of Christian service or they participated in some ritual such as baptism. And they think that that in and of itself is enough to make them righteous before God. Or they're they're very concerned about making sure that they take communion on a regular basis. Or they've walked some aisle or repeated some prayer. Or just because they pray before meals or, or they don't work on Sundays or they take their hat off when they pray. We've got all kinds of things like this. And yet, in their heart, they can do these things and have no real love for God. No awareness of their their own sin before a holy God, no commitment to a secret devotion to God. Charles Spurgeon once asked his congregation, quote, if there were no Sunday morning service at 11, how many of you would be Christians? Very good question. How easily we deceive ourselves into thinking that we worship the Lord God in spirit and in truth, thinking that somehow our hearts are indeed ablaze with a passionate love For the lover of our souls and that our minds are regulated by the word of God, when in fact our worship is nothing more than mere hypocrisy, something that we do in our culture. Well, the result of this kind of worship is an empty worship, as empty as the tradition of the elders concerning hand washing. Now, this is just one example of how they perverted 
the word of God and how their legalism had grown. And so knowing the depth of their hypocrisy, I find it interesting. Jesus utterly ignores their ridiculous indictment concerning his disciples not washing their hands. And he responds with a question, one that renders them stark naked in their duplicity. And in verses three through six, he goes on to say to them, and why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of tradition. So Jesus now confronts them because they have violated the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, of which the penalty is death. Now, let me explain this again. The Jews had concocted new regulations to avoid their responsibility for helping their aging parents, their elderly parents, some way to kind of get around their responsibility to show them love and respect. And here's how their hypocritical scheme worked. And this is what Jesus is confronting them with. First of all, the phrase anything of mine denotes a gift in the original language. And Mark even uses a very specific term for that. And it's the term korban. And that refers to a gift or, or, or a sacrifice that is that is specifically dedicated and given to God. So here's how it worked. If your parents needed help, well, what you could say is, oh, sorry, mom and dad, uh, I, I, I've declared my possessions korban. I dedicated them all to God. You know, I, nothing really I can do here. Uh, you know, all my possessions are now sacred and they've been promised to God. And and since Numbers 30 in verse two says, if any man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. And so, you know, mom, dad, sorry, I, I, I just cannot give it to you or I'll dishonor the Lord. Now, since they wouldn't always give all of their possessions to the synagogue and used much of them for themselves, the tradition also permitted for them to merely reverse the vow so that they could use their goods over the series of their life and then later on declare it Corban. So it was a very sophisticated scheme. Obviously, such a practice had nothing to do with honoring God or parents, but rather to just serve the, the self-interest and the greed of the people. So Jesus cuts to the very core of their sanctimonious religious pretense and exposes their empty worship along with its penalty, death. Now, beloved, this is always the mark of phony religion. Man strutting around like a proud peacock, showing off the plumage of his mechanical, legalistic, self-serving traditions. Wearing some personal preference as a badge of honor and ridiculing others who don't agree with him, labeling them as unspiritual. I remember a, a man visited this church, sat right over there with his wife. And after the service, I went back and talked with him and later on went into his home. And, and uh, he called me a false teacher and called our church a harlot church. Because he says there is only one church and it is the church of Christ. And you're calling yourself something different. And he went on and on after that. 
And I've had many attacks. Uh, I could write a whole book on this. I've had people that will not come to this church because we don't preach and use the King James version of the Bible exclusively. Others who ridicule us because we would allow women to wear slacks in the church. Because others have been angry because we allowed women to wear short hair in our church. Um, Others because we don't require women to have a head covering. Others won't come because we have instruments in the church. Others are angry because we don't have an official altar call at the close of the service. Others because we don't have communion every time we meet. And the list goes on. You see, folks, phony religionists always have a whole list of traditions and rituals that they adhere to. Prayers and fastings and diets and ceremonies and petty preferences about matters that are eternally inconsequential, not to mention unbiblical. And they love to condemn others who don't obey their self-serving standards. And so it was for this reason with these people that Jesus publicly condemns them. Verses 7 through 9, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You see, again, this is the essence of phony religion. Empty worship, sanctimonious rhetoric, going around talking about some man-made religious precept. Even even singing hymns of praise to God with an impure heart. Mechanical repetitions of prayers, dripping off the lips of some holier than thou type of person, trying to impress others and reinforce their inflated ego and their own perception of their godliness. Someone has well said that God's name is taken in vain more often inside the church than outside. But we see yet another mark of phony religion in verses 10 through 11. And the second mark is that of polluted hearts. Polluted hearts. You see, having finished his exposure of their empty worship, the empty worship of the Pharisees, who again were trying to make an issue out of this hand-washing deal and that the disciples were unclean and they were defiled and so on, Jesus goes on, he says, after he called the multitude to him, and this could have been some some time later. We don't know exactly how long later after that first scenario, but he calls the multitude to him and he said to them, hear and understand. Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. And he goes on to elaborate on this statement. In verses 15 through 20, I'll not read it again, but notice verse 17. He says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? By the way, Mark's gospel adds that that it's eliminated because it does not go into his heart. So, see, what the Lord is saying here is that no matter how contaminated the food is, when we eat it, it has absolutely no way of corrupting us morally. That food merely goes into our mouths, it is digested, in, and it is eliminated. And so to mechanically adhere to some elaborate washing ceremony has utterly no impact on a person's spirituality. Likewise, the failure to perform some cleansing ritual does not defile. It does, by the way, the word defile means to pollute or to make unclean. 
It has nothing to do with the person's spirituality. Again, the ceremonial washings of the Old Covenant were nothing more than symbols or, or pictures of the need for spiritual cleansing. So he goes on to explain in verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. You see, again, the issue he's saying is not that we can wash ourselves and be spiritually clean. It's not like we can do something to cleanse ourselves from sin, but rather we are in desperate need for God to cleanse our hearts. That's where the issue is. And this is the huge difference between true spirituality and superficial formality and empty worship in phony religion. Verse 19, he says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. In other words, defilement is, is a matter of the inner man. It is a matter of the heart. If a man has a polluted, unclean heart, all the hand washing in the world will not make him clean in God's eyes. That's the point. And so he must ask God for cleansing. We must plead with him for a pure heart to be undefiled and, and, and unpolluted, free from our selfishness and our pride and immorality and greed and all the rest that goes with it. But phony religion never deals with the inside. It just deals with the outside. With empty worship and polluted hearts, people thoughtlessly serve a God that they have invented. Let me give you an example. I remember a number of years ago, um, a lady came into my counseling office, roughly in her 30s, and she had come out of a false religious system that required unimaginable conformity to a myriad of legalistic rituals and ceremonies, purely a works righteousness system. And she had been labeled, or I should say diagnosed, OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder, a psychological label given to people who obsess over certain things and compulsively attend to them. And you see, uh, I, I've never seen the show, but I've seen the, the, the commercials for, I think the guy's name is Monk. Okay, that, that does this type of thing. And uh, by the way, like all the nomenclature, the technical psycho jargon of psychology, this sadly betrays a fundamental ignorance of the power of sin and idolatry in the human heart, not to mention the transforming power of the Spirit of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. Be that as it may, this lady came to me. And her family brought her in. She had been through a number of psychiatrists. She had been institutionalized. Nothing seemed to help. They didn't know what to do. So they heard of the counseling um, place where I was at at that time in my life. And as you looked at the lady, you could tell that there were serious problems, not only because of the garb that she wore that really demonstrated her religious affiliation, but also her head was down. There was no eye contact. She spoke in muffled tones and her hands, folks, her hands were 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 cracked open and bleeding from washing them some 60 to 100 times every day. When she came in to the room, you could see that she had little tissues and she would open the door with the tissue and she wouldn't touch you. She wouldn't touch. She wouldn't shake hands with you. 
And she had been on a variety of medications where she was just kind of locked out, as so often is the case. And she had also been diagnosed as having a phobic disorder because she was afraid that venereal disease was on everything. It was even floating in the air. And at times she would hyperventilate when she were, was around certain types of people, especially men. And over the time of working with her, I began to realize that whenever she had any kind of, of sexual thoughts, she felt like she was being defiled before God, that she was being eternally damned and there was no way to escape it. And so she, like so many people, began to structure began to structure her life in a way as to avoid any kind of defilement because she didn't know how to deal with the inside. She'd never been taught that everything was external in her world. And so that's all she knew. All she knew to do is to live in a world of paranoia and extreme self-protection. And now on top of that, she had been labeled OCD, which. To her meant that she had some hopeless disease for which there is no cure. And over time, I discovered, unfortunately, some patterns of sexual abuse in her early background. And yet now she's a young woman with normal sexual desires, but yet living in a religious system of legalism and hypocrisy. And folks, to make a very long story short, what we began to see and what she had to begin to hear is that it's not what's on the outside that is defiling her, but what's on the inside with respect to her heart and believing things that were not true about God, about his grace, about his mercy. She didn't understand the gospel. She knew nothing really of Christ. She knew about some mean spirited God that was always ready there to, to zap you if you didn't do the ceremonies. But she knew nothing of the grace of Christ. And so she lived in a system that perpetuated a lie. And you see, for her, she thought, you know, if I can just clean the outside of my body and, and, and the things around me through rituals and ceremonies, then maybe I'll be clean all over. You know, sin is irrational. And one of the things that I've learned over the years of working with, with probably into the thousands of people is that sin manifests itself in a myriad of ways. But, of course, her conscience railed against all of this. And when she began to understand the mercy and the grace of God and the joy and the freedom that is ours in Christ and the forgiveness of sins, by God's grace, she repented of her sins. And I remember beginning to see just the transformation in her life. And as Nancy and I discipled her over a couple of years, we began to see the power of Christ transform a person who is absolutely consumed with the externals. Folks, this is always indicative of people who are a part of a phony religious system whose worship is empty. And I must say to you that we must remember that it is not our environment. It is not some psychological disorder. It is not some demon that has slipped inside of us that causes us to act foolishly or to act wickedly. But rather, it is our heart. It is a heart that is deceived and desperately wicked. Folks, you change the heart and you change the man. And when people surrender 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he transforms them and gives them a new heart and a new mind and a new will and a new song. You see the whole man becoming a new creature in Christ. It's for this reason we must guard our thought life. We must guard against those darling sins that that we love to pander in the secret recesses of our imaginations and sometimes take them out and play with them. Because, folks, it's the thoughts, our thoughts combined with lust that comes together. And when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. And as James says, ultimately, it brings forth death. God warned his people of this very thing through the prophet Jeremiah and Jeremiah 414, where he says, wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? You see, friends, life dominating sins. And let me give you just kind of a brief list. Things like uncontrolled anger, ambition, pride, refusing to submit to authority, uh, a lifestyle of, of immorality. Being undisciplined, being greedy or stingy or anxious, having irrational fears, being discontent, being a glutton, being a drunkard, whatever it is. All of this flows from the same thing, the polluted well of a wicked heart. But God gives us cleansing through Christ if we're serious about repentance. And I must remind those of you that are mature in Christ, those of you that love the Lord, If this is the case, you're going to be constantly confessing your sin. And you say, well, you know, Pastor, I really, quite honestly, don't see that much sin in my life. Oh, really? You know, John has made it clear in 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he says, if we confess our sin. The idea of an habitual lifestyle of confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And may I ask you, what types of sins do you consistently see in your heart and bring before the throne of grace where you can find forgiveness and cleansing? Well, this is never the habit of a phony religion. Instead, we see empty worship, we see polluted hearts, and thirdly, blind leadership. Blind leadership. Now, might I add that this is not always some religious leader in some very visible place. It could be a father, it could be a mother, a grandparent, a friend. But somewhere with a phony religionist, you will find that they follow after someone who is as blind as they are. He says in verse 12, then the disciples came and said to him, do you not know or do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement (laughs) as if the Lord said, really? Oh, boy, I really feel bad about this. I had no idea. Obviously, he knew that. And by the way, what they were offended with was what was found in verse 11, the whole idea of what what enters. It's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, the Lord's. The Lord's attack against their ridiculous notion of hand washing. But in verse 13, he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. You see, here is a stinging rebuke. He's saying that 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 these hypocrites who practice empty worship with polluted hearts are tares among the wheat. They're, they're, They're not part of 
the body of Christ. They're not part of the kingdom of God. And they will be destroyed unless they repent. And so he says, leave them alone, which literally means stay away from them. Avoid them. If I can make this more practical, friends, you don't debate them. You you don't dialogue with them. And I must warn you, we want to be very careful, even when you try to witness to people like this, because they are like a serpent that can strike you with the venom of deceit very, very quickly. In fact, in Jude 23, and Jude, as you know, talks much about false teachers. He tells us of the danger of of, of when we encounter these people. And sometimes we do have an opportunity to speak to them. But when we do, we've got to be very careful as we try to, as Jude says, snatch them out of the fire, so to speak. And he says, and be careful not to get burned ourselves in the process. This is why I refuse to debate or even dialogue with heretics. I have had opportunities to debate with some of these people. I won't do it for this very reason. Many texts that speak to this. I'm not going to spend my time, waste my time with divisive people. Titus 3.10 says to reject them. Every now and then we've had them enter the church. What do you do when they enter the church? Well, you lovingly confront them, but you do it forthrightly. You do it with love and with compassion, but you let them know what the truth is. And then many times they leave. What do you do when they leave? Let them alone. Leave them alone. You don't go running after them. You leave them alone. Unless they're teachable. Paul warned Timothy not to even consider in 1 Timothy 6.20 the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. In fact, they are like those that Paul warned about in Titus 1.10. They are rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. This, of course, referring to the Jews, the very ones that Jesus had to deal with. These must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. Verse 13 of Titus 1 goes on to say, For this cause reprove them severely, that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Then he says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now again, may I, may I say, this does not mean that you cease loving these people. No, we're to continue to love them and to pray for them. We're to love our enemies. We're to have an agape love for them. We're to seek their highest good. But you don't make it your crusade to somehow fix them. You love them enough to speak the truth. You warn them as Jesus did. And again, the Lord's warnings were were stern. They were forthright. But he loved his enemies with compassion and with kindness. But especially with heretics, don't waste your time casting pearls before swine with lengthy debates. As we say here in Tennessee, you know, you can wrestle a skunk, but if you do, you'll end up smelling like one. Don't give them a chance to spray you. With a stench of deception, lest like the skunk, you become accustomed to it and then you yourself embrace their putrid error. On several occasions, I've had the opportunity of interacting with Seventh-day Adventists who are seriously deceived by a whole host of false teachings. They have a very elaborate system whereby they transport indiscriminately from the old covenant and place things into the new covenant. All kinds of things about 
things that you're supposed to do on the Sabbath and, and diet restrictions and on and on and on it goes. And I'm amazed at how blinded they have become because so many of these people, and there are many others that I could use as examples, but many of them slavishly follow some spiritually blind leader. You've got the blind leading the blind. They especially, for example, follow a prophetess whose name was Ellen White, whose visions and writings are nothing short of demonic. Nothing short of demonic. And one man that I, I had dealt with, uh, I remember he, he came to me and he called me a lot on the phone. And he, was, his, he came out of that family system, out of the Seventh-day Adventist system. And he was constantly in debates with his family. And he was always frustrated. He was always defeated. He was always confused. And he said, you know, Dave, I really don't know what to do. And I, and I brought him to some of these texts. And I said, you know, repute, reprove them and to do it forthrightly, but don't debate them. You know, the Lord says, let them alone. I mean, friends, to, to put it a little bit differently, if you spend enough time debating with a fool that thinks the world is flat, that the earth is flat, after a while, you're going to begin to wonder. That's how it works. The Lord says, don't do that. Confront them with the truth and move on. Now, back to Matthew 15 and verse 14. He says, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. What a graphic portrayal of false teachers and those that lead, lead the, the, the blind leading the blind. People who, silenced, who have silenced their conscience who have become consumed with the illusion of their own spiritual virtues. Men and women that hate the truth, and they hate anyone that's going to proclaim it, even as the scribes and Pharisees hated Jesus. And even now in this text, we know from other texts that they're planning on killing him. But the blind, of course, need no sight in the kingdom of darkness, for they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Folks, this morning, I want to close with a challenge to you. May I ask you to examine your heart? Because, friends, the most amazing thing about hypocrisy, about phony religion, is its ability to deceive its adherents. So perhaps I can give you a few things from the Word of God that can help you evaluate your heart. Some virtues that would really truly demonstrate genuine saving faith that would validate your faith and your pure heart before God. And if these aren't there, then you need to examine your heart. I've got ten of them. I'll give them to you. They're very brief. First of all, what you're going to see in the truly regenerate is a love for God and devotion to his glory. I don't know how to say it any more simply. Jesus said in Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever then you, you, you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Secondly, you're going to see a transformed life. One that finds no enjoyment practicing the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Thirdly, you're going to see a life of self-denial versus self-indulgence. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny 
himself, which means to renounce or to abandon your formal self, former self, to, to say no to yourself and to let and to have him take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke nine twenty three. You see, friends, these are going to be things that that are far away from just the externals of going to church, being baptized, doing some ritual, eating certain things, not eating certain things. That's never the measure of true spirituality. Fourthly, you're going to see a desire to be separated from the world. First John 2.15 says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Fifthly, you're going to see a secret devotion to God. Do you have that? Evidenced by a passionate desire to commune with him in prayer, to meditate upon his word and to spend time with him. Ephesians 6.18 says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. By the way, that secret devotion would include, sixthly, an insatiable appetite for the word of God. First Peter two, verse two, says that we are to be like newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Seventh. You will see a life that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Matthew 5 speaks of that. Eighthly, we could talk about a selfless love that a person would have for other Christians. First John 3.14 says we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Nine, you're going to see measurable spiritual growth in a person that truly knows Christ. Luke 8.15 says the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. And along with that, I might add that that person will manifest the fruits of the spirit, a controlled spiritual life that produces spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5.22 and following. And then number 10, a life of genuine humility. Psalm 51:17, the psalmist tells us the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. See, again, not something external, something internal. And he goes on to say a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Now, friends, I don't care how many times you've been baptized. I don't care how many aisles you have walked. I don't care how many church services you've attended, how many times you've partaken in communion, how many traditions or rituals you have kept. If these kinds of virtues are not in your life, your religion is phony. And like the scribes and the Pharisees, your worship is empty. Your heart is polluted. And there's a very good chance that you have been or are continuing to follow Blind leaders. May our hearts echo the words of that great hymn that says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Ever only all for thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. 
Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. Let's pray together. Father, again, we praise you for your word and for its clarity. And we pray that each of us will examine our hearts. Oh, Lord, we pray that you will help us to search our hearts to see if there will be any wicked way in us. Lord, I pray that we will be loving and yet forthright with those that we know and many that we love who are caught up in the bondage of some phony religion whose empty worship and polluted hearts have caused them to be blind to the blind guides that they follow. Lord, may we be salt and light in their lives. Thank you, Lord, again for speaking to our hearts this morning. Bless us with your word, we pray in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.